So we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're making our way through chapter 8. And as I considered more about how amazing this particular chapter is, this is the last section that we have in this chapter. We've seen over and over Christ displaying His authority. If you kind of think through the Gospel of, of Matthew, Matthew's trying to show us that Jesus is the King of the universe. So he starts with his lineage. That's why it opens up with a, a genealogy in chapter 1. And then we see his arrival, his birth in chapter 2. Then Matthew shows us his qualifications to be the king, his temptations, his, um, his anointing by the Holy Spirit. And then when you get to chapter 5, we see the king making his declaration. He's making his pronouncement of what it means to be in his kingdom and what he requires for those who would enter into a relationship with him. But now that he's finished his pronouncement, Jesus then goes into his public ministry, and now he's showing us that he has all authority. And we saw this already in chapter 8. He healed people from a distance. He, he brought people back to full health. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. They brought to them uh, him those who were sick from the city, and it said the, the whole city was at Peter's door, and Jesus cast out demons and then and cured the people who were sick, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 4. Then we saw Jesus challenge people that actually wanted to follow him and said, you need to make sure that you count the cost before you decide to follow me. And then we ended last Thursday with him calming the sea, there was seismic activity on the water. There was an earthquake. The disciples thought that they were going to die. Jesus rebuked them for having small faith, and then he immediately flattens out the water with one word. And the disciples then ended by saying, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And now we're moving into the last section of chapter 8, and Jesus is going to show his authority one more time. But before we get to this particular text, I want to give you some context of, of why this section is, is so important. And the reason we didn't play a second game is that I think this is going to take us a little bit longer to get through, and it also might prompt some questions that I may not be able to answer in the time given in the lesson. And I want to give you an opportunity to come up and ask those after. We're going to hit on a lot of different hot buttons tonight. And so listen carefully. Raise your hand if you are familiar with the term postmodern, or at least if you've heard it. It's hard to get away from. It's one of those terms that probably, uh, like the rest of us, it's a little bit hard to define exactly what postmodernism is. It probably depends on who you're talking to and what they're thinking about it. But the general idea is that even though there may be truth in the world, in the universe, we can't really know what truth is. And that sounds philosophical, it sounds highly educated, it's really just an excuse for people to believe whatever they want to believe without being held accountable. But before we got into the postmodern age, which happened around 1960s, the world was in a time of what was called modernism. And that was the, the major shift for the way that the world was thinking. Before the modernism time period, 1900s to 1960s, people actually believed in the spiritual. They believed in the supernatural. That was the, the worldwide understanding of the state of 
the creation, that there were things that were beyond just the physical. Now, people had their own ideas of what that was, and they still defined their own religion in any way that they wanted to, but they at least they recognized that there were, there were spiritual realities in life. And the, for the most part, people who call themselves postmodern, they've actually continued to hang on to this idea that we have, we have grown as a society and put away those things that are spiritual and supernatural. To maybe say it in, in a different way, those who are atheist and the vast majority of people who affirm evolution believe that we are nothing more than physical beings, that we are a complex chemical reaction inside nothing more than a physical body. And the reason I say that is because when, when you guys interact with people in the world, they're going to think, if, if you affirm what is spiritual, what is supernatural, they are going to think that you are odd. They are going to think that you are simplistic and that you are outdated. And those who deny spiritual realities, there's actually a severe danger in that. There is a threat to mankind for ejecting those type of beliefs. And Jesus is going to show us here definitively that there is something more than just the physical world. And what's ironic is that people who actually believe that they're postmodern, that they don't believe in the, the spiritual or the supernatural, they contradict that all the time because they believe in things like beauty and love, things that are intangible like the soul, maybe you would call it a personality, things that cannot be defined physically. They embrace those things, and yet they deny that God exists. I would guess that most of you here tonight affirm a spiritual reality about the world. But I think it's important for you to understand that you need to understand it in the correct way, that Jesus is the only one that can tell us what is beyond the physical. And so we need to listen to him carefully tonight. So Matthew is unfolding another example here of showing that Christ is the king, and we see that on display here at the end of chapter 8. He has, dis he has displayed his authority over the physical world. He just calmed a storm, and now he steps onto the shore, and he is confronted with two men that are possessed by demons. So let's read our section tonight, chapter 8, starting in verse 28. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding on the distance from them. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of the swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out, and they went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished 
in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and, and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Now, just as a, a cursory reading of that account, it may prompt a number of questions in your mind. Demon possession, not only possession of people, but of animals. Why do we read about so many demon incidents in the Bible, but we don't see any of that really in our culture today? What happened to these demons when the, when the pigs died? Where did they go? And why did the crowds beg Jesus to leave after this miracle had taken place? We'll answer some of these as we go along, but I want to kind of give you the, the structure of where, where we're going to be looking at tonight. First, we're going to see the confrontation between Jesus and these two men that are possessed. Then we're going to see the desperation of the demons because they know exactly who Jesus is and they are terrified of him. Then we're going to see the liberation that Jesus provided for these men, how he set them free from this bondage that they had been under. And then we'll end by seeing the reaction from the crowd, which is heartbreaking. But let's start with the confrontation. I need you guys to remember, we're, we're continuing on in a chapter. So we stopped last Thursday with the incident of the storm being calmed by Jesus. The, the earthquake on the water, which was causing the boat to be swamped, the disciples went to Christ. They woke him up. They said, Master, we are, are perishing. Implication is you need to do something because this is threatening our, our life and our existence. Jesus rebukes them. Remember, before he calms the storm, he rebukes them while the waves are still hitting. And he says, you of little faith, why are you afraid? And when he speaks, the storm flattens out immediately. And these men are, are left amazed at this power. Now remember, they just thought that they were going to die. I want you to think the last time where you experienced true fear. After you go through something like that, adrenaline rush, crash, exhaustion, you're trying to get your breath. The, the boat finally lands on the shore. These men, are, they're soaked. They get out of the boat and they don't even step onto the ground when these two maniacs approach them and confront them literally not able to take a breath. And the Bible here tells us, confirms for us, that there is something beyond just the physical. Demons are real. When God created the holy angels, He created a certain number of angels, and they are immortal. They can never lesson in number, they can never die, and the same amount today exists as in the time of the creation when they came into being. And Lucifer, as one of the created angels, corrupted himself and took a third of the holy angels with him in his rebellion. So you have a third of these fallen angels 
which the Bible also calls demons. The Old Testament confirms their existence. There are a few references in Acts and the epistles and the book of Revelation, but the, the overwhelming majority of the account of demonic activity is in the gospel accounts. And so demons have existed before man was created, and, and they're still a part of our world today. But for the most part, they like to hide their activity. They like to mask themselves so that people can start to say, there's no such thing as the supernatural. There's no such thing as the spiritual. And especially if you're in a more advanced culture or city, they like to hide under things such as mental illness. Now, of course, not all mental illnesses are caused by demonic activity, but some of them are. But so they have a nice broad brushstroke of, of hiding their activity. Ephesians chapter 6 actually tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, the plans, the blueprints, the thinking of the devil. It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Four titles for demonic beings, these ranks of organization and power and influence in the world. And they're here at work. Satan is not omnipresent. He doesn't have the ability to be in more than one place at the same time. And so he dispatches these unholy angels to do his work. I would imagine every time we gather as a church to preach about Christ, there is resistance to that work. There is a battle for the souls of the people that are listening to the Scriptures. You think about the, the description in Matthew chapter 13 with the four soils. And as the word is being preached, the seed is trying to germinate in the heart of the listener. Jesus tells us that Satan snatches away the word from the hard soil or the hard heart. Satan cannot be everywhere where the, the scripture is being taught. He sends his fallen demons to go and do that work for him. So this is a reality. But just remember that a third of the angels fell which means there are two-thirds of holy angels that God also dispatches to minister to His people. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits set out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so as I, as I just scan the room here tonight, I, I don't know where each of you are at in your spiritual condition, but now I'm opening up the Bible. I'm going to show you that there is salvation in Christ and Christ alone. I want you to listen to the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you aren't saved, I want you to come to salvation. But there is forces, there are spiritual forces at work that want to resist that labor. And it's happening in this room. And so we see this here. When in the Gospels, why is their activity so 
uh, regular? Why, why, is, why are all of the, the, or at least the majority of the examples of, of demonic activity in the Gospels? It's because when Jesus took on human flesh and he stepped into his public ministry, he exposed all of this work. They could not hide any longer. These demons did not want to come before Christ, but they had no choice. This is not an equal battle of good versus evil and 50-50 chance and who's going to win the struggle. This is the creator of the universe and these lowly, fallen, corrupt creatures that have taken over these souls of these men. And, and as you read the Gospel of Mark and Luke, which both talk about this account, it actually says that they came up and bowed before Christ because they are terrified of his authority. And so they're desperate. They are desperate to make sure that they are not cast out. So I'm going to weave some of the uh, details from Mark 5 and Luke 8. If you're taking notes and I mention something that's not in Matthew, uh, trust me, it's in Mark 5 or Mark 8, but you can look there if you need confirmation. So there's two men here in Matthew's account. There are two of them that have been enslaved by these demons They're living in the tombs. Imagine that as your dwelling place. The Bible tells us they're extremely violent. At some point, people tried to bind one of these men, at least, with chains and shackles. And so there was this extreme strength where he actually broke free from the chains. And the Bible says that these men were constantly screaming day and night in this area. And it also says that they were gashing themselves with stones. So you have death in the area of the tombs. You have self-mutilation. And both of those are associated with demonic activity. That's an interesting perspective for people that think they are tempted to cut themselves or anybody that might be considering suicide. That's a demonic way of thinking. These men are possessed, and this is what these these demons are trying to to do to these poor men, and they are helpless because they are enslaved. And even though they feared Christ, they had no option but to come and bow before Him. Verse 29, they cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons know that there is an appointed time in the future where they will be cast into the abyss. In fact, it's Luke's account that specifically tells us that they say, do not cast us into the abyss. And then after they're in the abyss for a period of time, Matthew chapter 25 tells us that they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus looking into the future in Matthew 25, verse 41, he says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So these demons are confronting Christ. They are terrified They're bowing before him, 
and they are desperately trying to avoid going into the abyss. And we see their, their desperation come out in this request. Look at verse 30. It says, Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat, implore, this is to beg. They are begging Christ, saying, If or since... Since you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. This is one of those accounts that, for those of you who have been around your Bible, you've been in the church, you're, you're familiar with this account, and sometimes familiar, familiarity with a passage will make you a little bit dull to the, the significance of what's being said here. It's like, why, why this request? Why would the demons ask for this, and the text doesn't tell us, but we have some educated guesses that we can make. We've already seen the intent of these demons. It's death, mutilation, suppression, possession, and their desire to inhabit this human body, they also desire to destroy life. But they also realize that Jesus is not going to permit them to stay. That's why the, the translation can literally be, since you are going to cast us out, we know that you are about to command us to do this. So they know that he's not going to allow them to stay. They ask permission. Will you send us into this nearby herd of pigs? Why pigs? Again, we're not told specifically. Pigs were actually unclean, according to the Jewish dietary laws, so maybe in the, the thinking of the, the demons, they thought maybe Christ would accept this proposal because the, the animals were considered unclean anyway. They're just trying to do anything to avoid the abyss. And notice it says, send us to this herd. It implies that they can only do what Jesus tells them to do. There's no negotiation. There's no, whatever Jesus is about to say is going to be the final word, and they know it. So in verse 32, we see the liberation that Jesus provides here. We see him providing freedom. Look at verse 32. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine. Now, before we kind of go any further, I want you to stop and, and, and consider the, the significance of the beginning of that verse. It says, they went out. We're so focused on demons and pigs and all these legitimate questions that we have about the text that we sometimes forget. These men were just set free. Can you imagine being released from these demons after so long of being in captivity, and all of a sudden it says they went out. These men are now set free. With one word, authoritative, decisive, irresistible spoken word of Christ, His power, His authority, it says that they went out and they are suddenly free. In fact, Mark tells us that Jesus is talking with one of these demons, the, 
the one that's being the representative because there are more than one, Jesus asks what his name is, and the answer is, we are legion for we are many. And we're also told in Mark that 2,000 pigs were inhabited by these unclean angels. What an astonishing sight this must have been. Jesus did not have to give a visual, but he's providing for us a confirmation that these men have been released and also what the intent of these demons actually were. It's fascinating to me that we see the same terminology when the disciples were on the boat. They went to Jesus and said, Jesus, we are perishing and they're on the water. Those were spared and were saved, but now we see the demons go into the herd of pigs, then perish in the water. And what's amazing to me is you always have people that are critical of the Bible and completely miss the point of the passage. Critics will bring up two things about this particular passage. First of all, how could Jesus do this to somebody else's property? There was a significant amount of financial investment in 2,000 head of pig. Well, the simple resolution is this. In, math, in, uh, in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Nobody on this planet owns anything on this planet. Everything belongs rightfully to God. Everything that you have, you are a steward of. And Jesus saw fit to use this for his honor. And he can do whatever he wishes. The second criticism is almost laughable. But some people will say, well, how could Jesus allow the death of so many animals? The answer is because the human soul is not even comparable in worth to an animal has no soul. These men have just been set free from their bondage and people have the audacity to ask about the death of animals. It's backwards thinking. This is the compassion of Christ to show his care for these two men. And again, it seems that Jesus is giving a, a, a physical, visual demonstration of what these demons desired to do to these two men, and yet they were spared. So how did the people respond? Look at verse 33. This is the herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold... The whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. <clears throat> I would encourage you to actually read through Mark's account, Mark chapter 5. The one man that's, that's dominant in this story shows up there, and it says that after he had been set free, the description is that this man was sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, there was a complete transformation from what he was. He had control of his faculties. 
he had dressed himself, sat down, and I'm sure beyond relieved and thankful. In fact, he was so grateful that Mark's account tells us that the demons were imploring to go into the pigs. The same term is used. This man is imploring Christ, please let me go with you. This man knows that he has been redeemed, and he says, I will do anything. Please let me go and follow you. And Jesus says, no, what I want you to do is to go and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. And so he goes and begins to proclaim all of the good things it says that Jesus had done for him. Transformation. The herdsmen then run to the town. They tell everybody what has happened, including what has happened to the two men. And when the people came, they're filled with fear. It specifically ties it into the change in the two demoniacs. When they saw that these men were different and what had happened to them, they became frightened and they actually begged or implored, there's the same word again, for Jesus to leave the region. The reason is, is because sinful people are always fearful in the presence of a holy God. Jesus could have offered liberation for their souls as well. He could have provided them salvation if they had bowed before him and confessed him as Lord, but they refused to do it. And they begged him to leave. And so he did. So there's a couple of thoughts I want you to grab onto as we wrap up this passage. First is the reminder of demonic activity, the reality of this, may be frightening to some of you. And I would say tonight that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you should be frightened. As desperate as the demons were to avoid going into the abyss, the lake of fire was even more terrifying to them. I want you to listen again to Matthew 25, verse 41. It says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. There is coming a day of separation between the sheep and the goats, between those who have put their faith in Christ and Christ alone and those who have refused the gospel of Christ. And not only will the demons be thrown into the eternal fire, but you will be cast into that same lake of fire because you rejected the gospel. And so if you're not saved tonight, my my pleading with you is that you would consider your sin and that you need to be forgiven because a holy God will judge you for your sins. I've been studying through the book of Romans, and it says there's coming a day where the secrets of men are going to be judged. Everything that you think you've done in secret, everything that's been sinful in your thinking, in your motives, and all the, the iniquity that you've done in, in private and in the dark and you think you've gotten away with, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be the judge of everything that you've done in secret. And unless you have his righteousness, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. So you should be fearful. 
So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ while you have time. Through God's providence, he has gathered 45 souls in this room to listen to the gospel tonight. Have your sins been forgiven? And have you believed on Christ? Or are those seeds being plucked away from your thinking and your mind and you're discarding it? If you're a believer tonight, you have nothing to fear. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. For the believer, Ephesians tells us that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You cannot be possessed by a demon. The Bible confirms that for us. However, even though you shouldn't be fearful, you also have to remember in Ephesians chapter 6, it tells you as a believer that you need to take up the full armor of God because there are attacks coming against you. The shield is to put out the fiery darts of the evil one. If you don't have protection, Satan can do a lot of damage in the life of a believer. He cannot possess you. He cannot take away your salvation. But he can cause a lot of shipwreck of the faith. So don't discard him. Don't ignore the fact that he can do damage. But we're also told that we are not to fear him. Now, some people have swung too far the other way and become too bold, thinking, well, now that I'm in Christ, I can rebuke and cast out demons like Jesus did. Well, first of all, you're not an apostle because that was only granted to the apostles. In fact, in the book of Jude, Michael the archangel would not bring a railing judgment against the devil. He said, I'm, I'm going to have the Lord rebuke you. It is not your place to cast out demons. It's not your place to speak against demons. The Bible tells us your response, James chapter 4, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. When those temptations come, you simply do not give in to the temptations, and he will flee. Do not fear, but also don't think that he can't do damage in your life. But thanks be to God that the Lord Jesus Christ is king of the universe. That's who we serve, and that's who we worship. My encouragement to you is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And we covered a lot of different intersecting things in the message today about demon possession, cutting, suicide, oppression of demons. If you have other questions that you need to sort through, then come and talk to us so we can take you to the scriptures and give you what the word actually says. But, but don't be so foolish to think that this spiritual battle isn't real. Ephesians says, your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against all these world forces of darkness. Are you in Christ? Are you sealed? Are you saved? Are you protected? If not, may today be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray together.
Lord, I thank you for the authority of Christ on display as we look at this incredible chapter. Thank you for Jesus' compassion to set these men free. Father, I would ask that Jesus would do the same thing for any soul here tonight that is still in their sins and, and has not repented and has not believed on Christ. Let them feel uh, the seriousness of how they have broken your law and that they are under your condemnation and they need to be forgiven. But let them see the compassion of Christ as well, that He seeks and saves those who are lost, that you desire and you delight in bringing people into your kingdom, into your family. Father, I pray for your children here tonight. Help us to take up the full armor. Help us not to be fearful. Help us to resist the devil and help us to submit to you in all things we ask. In the name of Christ, amen.